Today, we're going to be looking at together John 21, verses 15 to 24. Like, how stubborn of this guy to drag this thing out. He could have just covered one more verse and we'd be done with John. Verse 25, we're going to save for next week. We'll finish. Uh, But today, let's read verses 15 to 24 to hear what God has to say to us. I will read. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this Disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. As another year comes to a close... I am perpetually stunned at my capacity to fail. I fail categorically, qualitatively, quantitatively, and creatively. I want to explain the categories because you may be able to resonate. Categorically, in every realm of influence, I fail. Personally, maritally, parentally, socially, pastorally, and the list could go on. Like I've, you go back and you start looking at the previous year and you're like, huh, I blew it in quite a few areas. Qualitatively, By that I mean 
It's not just like little failures. They're like high quality. <laughs> they're qualitative failures. They're, they're big. They're the kind of things that like stick with you, that keep you up at night. They make you wonder. They make you doubt yourself. The things that never leave. Quantitatively, that one's pretty easy. There's a lot of them. And then creatively. I guess if I could be proud of failing, this maybe is my best feature of failure. I can fail in ways that nobody's ever thought of before. I'm pretty creative. I mean, I feel like I'm exploring uncharted territory often in my lack of ability to live up to a standard. Let me call it a standard because I don't know that it's the standard, God's standard for me, even though I know I fail there. Sometimes I fail to live up to my own self-imposed standard, which is another failure that I couldn't figure out how to add an L-Y to. But I think that as, again, the we start to look to a new year as we start to wrap up this one as everybody gets a little more introspective. I don't think I'm alone. There's a, there's a penchant for, for recognizing our, our weakness, our limitation, our failures for every person in this room. And I, and I want you to know that while there could be some grace in that, there, it's, it's actually potentially a problem a problem. You're like, oh, it's humble. But if, if the failure looms too large, it's actually problematic. And I say this for every person in the room. Some of you may be thinking like, well, look, I'm not one of you know, the people here. I'm not in Jesus. I'm just kind of visiting. I say this for you too. Failure is a problem for those who are not in Christ because it could be the thing that prevents them from coming to him. Nobody wants to go and uh, try out for the basketball team that they know they're not going to make. It's just not fun to get cut from the team. I could see some of you sitting on the edge of things, contemplating Christ and wondering, I, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can do that. You don't know what I've done. And therefore, failure prevents you from entering into this relationship with Jesus by faith. Failure is dangerous for those who are out of Christ. Failure is dangerous for those who are already in Christ as well. Because it doesn't prevent you from entering in. You're already there. It, it um, prevents you from stepping out. From stepping out and serving, from going to the sitting on the sidelines, avoiding playing time because you don't want to mess it up kind of attitude. If the failure of, uh, if the failure of, excuse me, the danger of those who are not in Christ, a failure is that they have no salvation. You may not even enter into Christ by faith because you think you've failed too much. The danger for those who are already in Christ is no service. We just, we turn inward. We kind of slink to the shadows. We don't engage in the work that God has called us to do. And so as we near the end of the book of John, we, we see that this issue of failure gets back 
uh, to a point that John himself is trying to make. We said this is an epilogue, right? It's something that you append to the end of a book to wrap up loose ends. Guess what one of the loose ends that John feels like he needs to wrap up is? The failure of Peter. Historically speaking, like it was probably rather confusing, disorienting for people to read of Peter being the guy who uniquely failed in his capacity to follow Jesus. It's fascinating. If you look at all four gospel accounts, every one of them record the failures of Peter. I'm sure he was probably thinking, thanks, guys. I mean, of all the events, think about it, of all the things that one guy will write and another guy will leave out, they all cover the failure of Peter. And here's where the historical dissonance comes in. Anyone in the first century reading those original Gospels would have known that Peter was the guy who preached at Pentecost. Peter was the guy who pastored the church in Jerusalem. Peter was the guy who wrote those epistles. Like Peter, Peter like was large and in charge somehow, but like he's depicted as the failure that he was. Like we're missing some information here. Like what in the world happened between him forsaking Jesus and him being fruitful for Jesus? John is the only one that records it. John writes this epilogue not only because Jesus is a great Savior, we saw that last week, but also because John is a great friend. He wants the churches to know that Peter, the authoritative leader, is indeed credible because he was restored by none other than the risen Lord Jesus, and he wants us to know that as well. The main idea is not going to resonate with you as a 21st century Westerner, but the main reason John wrote this is to restore the credibility of the apostolic witness. Like, he wants you to understand that Peter was legit. Jesus said, this guy is going to take the lead. But there's a more practical note that resonates. It's not the main point, but it is a point. It's a pastoral point. For those of us who know we've blown it and wonder about the opportunity for us to stay engaged in the mission of God, like, have we been benched? Have we been permanently sidelined in light of the things that we've done? Like, is there a place for us? Because, like, we know how we are, we know what we've done, we know what we think about other people who have failed. And we wonder if God thinks the same thing. Maybe I'm the only person in the room. I see some eyes looking at me like they don't know what I'm talking about. But have you, have you ever had the tendency? No, you know, I won't, not you. Let me just, more confession. I'm going into sabbatical. I'm going to be gone for a month. I'm just going to, I'm going to let it all out and you're going to do it. <laughs> I see, it, I see it with others, but I'll just I'll only claim it for myself. In fellowship situations, in church situations, there's this tendency, and I hate to admit this because some of you are going to be questioning me, but it's okay. There's this tendency to give people like three strikes and then they're out. Like I, I start to file, I file people away. Like I can count on you. 
Don't mess up more than three times because you're going in the file. <laughs> One pastor explained it this way. He said, in his file, there's a, a W for worthless, H for hopeless, D for dumb, F for forgetful, N for being a nag. Like you start to file people away and like, okay, I don't, I'm just writing them off. They don't, have, they don't have a shot at this. And maybe you've done the same before. Maybe you know what it is to write someone off because they have failed, and yet they claim to follow Jesus, but for you, it's just they're non-existent. They're not even in the game anymore. And that is the pastoral note that John wants to address. What is the role of failure in following Jesus? If someone fails quantitatively, qualitatively, like, is there anywhere for them in, in the service of God? Are they, are they still engaged in the work? And so we see in this, in this closing like a bunch of failing disciples, but Peter at the fore. Peter's name is mentioned more here in this text than any other chapter so far in the book of John. All the disciples have failed in faith. They all forsook him, and yet Jesus comes, and what does he do? He, he makes them a meal. He serves them. Like He's showing that they're part of his community. But then you notice in our text, he pulls Peter aside particularly. They go for a walk. And in it, we see not only the refreshing of the disciples as a whole, but the restoration of Peter in particular. And to, in doing this, he is, he is promoting within us the, the privilege of following Jesus even though we fail. That's what this text is about. The privilege of following Jesus even though we fail. Two different times, Jesus will summarize with Peter's concerns, follow me. Don't worry about them. Follow me. Don't worry about that. Follow me. And that's what he says for us as we begin to wrap up the book of John. Though you fail, you still may follow. He, uh, he does this by telling us two, um, recounting for us two conversations. There's two conversations that take place here. And... Um, I'll maybe share a few lessons from those conversations at the end, but just follow the flow of the text. Uh, the first is a conversation with Peter in verses uh, 15 through 19, and then uh, there is a, uh, a conversation about John. So there's the conversation with Peter, and then there's the conversation about John. Let's look at this uh, interchange between Peter and Jesus, their conversation together. You see it in verses uh, 15 through uh, 17, this first part, and these words are familiar to many of us, as, as Jesus actually has provided for them amply, and he now is going to, you know, like point out Peter in particular, and he says, look, um, Peter, I, I, I need to talk to you in particular. This is really important. Here's the big thing on my mind. Are you ready? Do you love me? <laughs> it seems like a simple enough question. Just, do you love? Do you love me? I'll make a note here because 
Some of you like to, to geek out, which I think is cool. Uh, but language-wise, there's some stuff going down. Like there's going to be uh, one instance of the word agape love being used by Jesus. And then Peter's going to respond with the Greek word phileo. And for those of you who don't have a clue what I'm talking about, there's this Christian tendency uh, for all of us to think that we're Greek scholars and that we know what agape is versus phileo. And for those of you who aren't in this little conversation, basically the rumor is that agape is God's love and phileo is something lesser than. Uh, that could be true generally. That can be true. But I just want you to understand something that, that biblical writers oftentimes write the same way we do, and sometimes they use these things called synonyms. <laughs> Uh, they're similar, but they're not the exact same. In fact, when, um, when Philip and I were working on that ballot thing, like we were explaining what church membership is, and we wrote three sentences out, and we noticed that the word church was in every sentence, and you know what we did? We, we like tried to change it so that it was like church, congregation, assembly, because it's just kind of annoying to keep repeating the same word over and over again. It just kind of happens, right? They do that in the Bible, too. <laughs> John in particular, let me help you with this because it's going to matter. John in particular, like, will interchange the words phileo and agape throughout the whole book. I'll give you an example. The disciple whom Jesus loved. He calls himself that over and over again. Sometimes he uses the word agape. Sometimes he uses the word phileo. They're synonyms. Point is, you're going to see some synonyms in this language, and I'm not going to nuance every one of them for you. The English translators chose to use basic words like love because it communicates the idea. I'm going to stick with the word love. Everybody good? All right, so let's get to the concept. Jesus is talking to him about his love. He doesn't have a clue what's going to be going down here, uh, but notice what he even calls him. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I've never even noticed that. I've seen this text my whole life. And he doesn't call him Peter, even though he named him Peter. Like at the beginning of John 1, he says, your name will be Peter, which means rock. We know from the other gospels that like he was supposed to be like a strong, dominant part of this work that Christ would be building. And yet Jesus here avoids the name that he gave him in the very first chapter of the book. And he keeps calling him Simon, his old name. And then he adds, son of John, his old identity, three times. It's almost as if Jesus is inviting Peter to consider whether or not he wants to go under his old life, his old way of doing things, or to be invited into something better, something superior. So he addresses them as if like he's part of his old life. After all, Simon just finished a pretty non-astounding fishing expedition, which was his old trade, until Jesus got himself involved. So maybe Simon Peter is contemplating this. So he identifies him by his old name, which was strange, and then he just asks him the question about love. Do you love me more than these? Now that's an interesting question because he doesn't just say, do you love me? He actually gives a frame of reference like, do you love me more than these guys do? Like pointing back to the disciples and why would he ask Simon that in particular? Because Simon had projected himself as the guy who loved Jesus more than these. Do you remember that instance back in John 13 where Jesus is predicting 
that, that they will abandon him? And he says, Lord, I will never abandon you. Not we will never abandon you. I will never abandon you. I will die for you. Implication, not these losers. I will step up. And that's when Jesus reminds him, Simon, before the night is over, three times you will deny me. This this conversation has a context, and it's an important one for you to remember. It is not only going to be a reference point for Simon's great claim to have some kind of superior love, but there's some contextual clues as well that Jesus is going after Simon's failure in particular. It isn't just that he'll ask him the thing three times. It isn't just that he's going to say, do you love me more than these? But there's also the smell of charcoal in the air. Just a few verses earlier, it says that Jesus made them breakfast on a charcoal fire. Think about, oh, who cares? Friends, there's several Greek words for fire. Charcoal is rather particular. The last time we saw a charcoal fire, the last time Peter would have smelt that likely was on the very night that he betrayed him. It says that he was standing by a charcoal fire. Don't sense have a way of bringing about memory? Just a waft in the air can take you back 20 years, 30 years. Doubtless, the smell of charcoal on that seashore took Peter back 15, 30 days to that moment of failure. Then there's the particular question, do you love me more than these You can just kind of feel like Simon tensing up just a little. Even the name, he didn't call him Peter, but he just asked the basic question, do you love me? And so he actually says, yes, Lord, you know. It's actually a humble response. You you know that I love you. Notice this time he doesn't say, of course I love you. He says, you know that I love you. He puts it back on Jesus. Simon's a humbler man here. If there is any gradations between the word phileo and agape, I will admit that Simon does here use the word phileo. Where he's had this like tendency to be bold and brash and big, here he's meek and humble. He says, Lord, you you know that, that I love you. And how does Jesus respond? Feed my lambs. For Peter, the future expression of this love for Jesus, he's like, if you really love me, here's what it's going to look like for you. You take care of my sheep. Now, we have to consider, what would Peter have thought of with sheep? Like, did Jesus have a physical flock of sheep somewhere that he was caring for? No, in John 10, Jesus had already described himself to be the great shepherd, the one who cares for God's people, this, this one who would like tend them and feed them and, and nurture them, and the biggest one, lay down his life for them. I mean, shepherding was a dangerous calling, and, and so Jesus here is saying, not only will you get to be a sheep, but if you love me, I actually want you to step into the role. I want you to lean in. I want you to take charge. I want you to be willing to do what you said you would do at the beginning and lay down your life for my people. And notice that his expression of love 
to the Lord Jesus is seen horizontally, not primarily vertically. It's in his care for the flock. Great conversation, Jesus. You ready to head back to the fire now? I mean, I imagine he's a little uncomfortable where he wants to go, but he just keeps walking down the beach, and Jesus asks him a second time, Simon Peter, excuse me, Simon, son of Jonas, John, or excuse me, Jonas or John, depending on how you translate, do you love me? Peter's likely thinking, you just asked me that, so he repeats again, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He uses that potentially weaker word again, but just trying to answer the question like, okay, Lord, you get it. You would think that the conversation's over at this point, and yet Jesus retorts one more time, tend my sheep, tend my sheep, take care of my flock. Peter is not just going to exist. I mean, for, for Jesus, Peter will express this love in practical ways. You think Peter's getting the idea, but just in case he's not getting it, <laughs> Jesus is going to go a third time. And what's fascinating, I didn't live in this time and period. I have to trust the history people smarter than me. But to affirm an oath publicly, it would need to be said three times. Jesus will give Peter a third opportunity to affirm his love for him in light of his failure. And notice how, how this interchange goes down. Look, look at verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says that Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Even though Jesus switches the word here to phileo, that's not what Peter is grieved about. He is grieved that it was a third time. Like, Lord, why would you have to ask me three times? Because there were three denials. And yet I want you to note that even when Simon says, yes, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you, Jesus will a third time, ratifying this oath, <laughs> this desire for him to be in his ministry, he will say, feed my sheep. This man's not out. He is still in. Like, he gets to still follow Jesus. He isn't even in some minority role. Like, he's supposed to be, like, at the helm, shepherding God's flock to the end. And this is a stunning thing to consider. In fact, not only will, will Peter get to play, but he will pay the ultimate price for his expression of devotion to Jesus. Notice this. It's Rather enigmatic at first glance. Look at verse 18. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, I want to be clear about something here. Jesus is not telling Peter that he's going to grow old and live in an assisted living facility. Um, you could see that. You can imagine it. You're like, oh, I, I get what he's saying. He's like, Peter, you're just going to you're grow to be an old man, and you're going to get to the point of life where you don't even dress yourself anymore. 
And for those of us who are in the first three quarters of our life, you can't imagine such a thing. But for those who are in the last quarter of your life, I bet you can. Like, oh, well, good. sounds like Peter's going to have a long, fruitful ministry. But that is not what Jesus is saying. If Jesus was just merely trying to say, hey, Peter, you're going to get to grow old and somebody's going to have to dress you, there would be this, um, there would be this just like really clean parallelism. It would be something like, um, young, old, dress self, be dressed, walk where you want, be carried where you don't want to go. Like, you would think like, oh yeah, that's what he's talking about. But Jesus adds a little line that breaks the parallelism. You get what I mean by parallelism? I know that's a big word, but like the things match one another. Young and old match. Uh, dressing yourself and being dressed match. Walking where you want and being carried where you don't want to go, they match. They're, they're antithetical. They're opposites. But like, look at it. I want to see if you can figure it out. There's, there's something introduced to the second half of the verse that wasn't there in the first. It doesn't have a match. It's that phrase, stretch out your hands. What does that mean? It's not just saying that Peter's going to hold his arms up so somebody can get his garment over him. It means stretch out your hands. It was a common metaphor for crucifixion. It was a figure of speech familiar to all because they had seen that process. Again, avoiding just unnecessarily gruesome detail, suffice it to say that anyone crucified was first dressed with the crossbeam. It would be tied to their hands, placed across their shoulders. They didn't carry the whole thing of wood like you see in pictures. It was just the beam. They actually kept one beam at the crucifixion site the whole time. And what they would do is the guy would carry his cross to the place of execution with his hands stretched out. They would be tied to it. And then once they got him there, they would lay everything down, nail his hands to that cross, and then crucify him. I mean, this is seen all throughout the first few centuries of the church, which were very familiar with crucifixion. Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Cyprian, all interpret the phrase, stretch out your hands, as a description of crucifixion. The epistles of Barnabas, the Didache. Like, this is just normal language in Greco-Roman literature, familiar with that time period. And just in case you don't understand that vernacular, John pitches in and gives you a little parenthesis. Look at verse 19. He says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Just in case you think it's a dressing situation gone bad as an old man, John says, hey, I just in case you miss it, it's saying how he's going to die and make Jesus look good. Think about that for Peter. Peter is saying he's being restored to ministry, but like he's not being restored to the, the, the shiny and the flashy and the beautiful and the better than. He is being restored to a life of sacrificial service that will conclude at some unknown time with his being crucified just like his Lord. 
Do you remember the old story of the the sword of Damocles? Like, it was always hanging above his head as he sat on that throne. And as Peter would, like, sit in the seat of a shepherd, he would know that at one day, at some point, he would end up dying just like his Lord did. And Jesus summarizes by saying, After this, he said to him, Follow me. Having established the earthly outcome of the work into which he is being reinstated, Jesus is commanding him to follow him. He's like, Peter, you're back on track. This was the first thing I ever told you. Follow me, and I don't care that you have failed. I have paid for that. It has been satisfied. It is finished. Keep following me. You're not done. Failure is not final. You follow me. He says that for Peter, and he says that for every one of us who fails so qualitatively and quantitatively and creatively. Follow me. He calls us to follow him, though we fail not only in this uh, conversation with Peter, but also in the conversation about John. You see this in verses 20 to 24. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple. Notice this, like, it's this epic moment, right? Like, he's, like he's been reinstated. And Peter is still Peter. He can't keep his stinking eyes on Jesus. <laughs> Man, talk about failure. I'm so encouraged by this. Because, like, it's like this big dramatic moment. And Peter should be maintaining some eye contact with Jesus or like giving him a hug or something, but he starts like looking around. And he sees John. This is what the text says. He turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And notice how John narrates it. This is, this is how Peter viewed John. And John includes this for us. He doesn't say like John. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple, the one who also had leaned back against him during supper, the one who got to like sit the closest to Jesus, the one who had this intimate access with Jesus, and who in that awkward moment when the, when the betrayal was predicted was able to whisper to him, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? He sees that guy. He sees his competition. <laughs> Do you remember that in, in, the, in the race? <laughs> in the race to the empty tomb? Like, John even interjects, and I was the first one to get there. Like, you could tell there's like this friendly competition between them. And so Peter turns in, and like, he sees the, like, the guy, the other guy that's like, you know, vying for teacher's pet status with Jesus, the one who was so close to him. And he's thinking, all right, Lord, you just told me that I'm going to die by crucifixion. And he turns around, he sees John, and he's like, and what about him? I mean, that's exactly what he says. <laughs> I love this. Jesus' response is fantastic. Look at verse 22. Uh, Jesus said to him, I'll, I'll give you the Greek here, Nunya. <laughs> Nunya business. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
Don't worry about everybody else. We can worry about our failures. And we can worry about others. And both can distract us from a life of self-sacrifice rendered unto Jesus and him alone. He says, what is that to you? Here's where Greek is helpful. It's a small thing, but he does say, you follow me. You is twice. It's in the verb, and then it's in the pronoun. You. It's about you. Follow me. Don't, don't worry about the others. Interestingly, this is fascinating. This little saying, though, that Jesus made about John when he said, yeah, if I will for him to be around till I come back, like, who cares? What is that to you? You know how a game of telephone works? You ever played that? Like you get in a circle and you like tell somebody and then they tell somebody and they tell somebody. Like this conversation was so dramatic, like they went back and talked about it. And it started spreading like a rumor. And somebody started leaving out some words. And, and guess what got propagated? Instead of the, the, the quote going down like, if I will that he remains until I come, they lost the if. And they started saying to one another, he will remain until Jesus comes. And so there was this like whole group of people in the first century. Think about this. John has to actually clarify in his letter, in the epilogue, like, oh, I, uh, by the way, there's a rumor going around that some of you think that I'm not going to die until Jesus comes back. I want to clarify what he actually said was, if, if I will that he should remain. I love that John puts that in there. Why does he do that? Again, he's concerned about historical credibility. Like, what's going to happen when he's hearing this rumor and all of a sudden he dies as an old man? Like, it's going to discredit the message. John is concerned about, like, maintaining apostolic credibility. So he says, oh, by the way, I know that, that Peter was ultimately concerned, and I'm, you know, the focus is on Peter following Jesus. But I want you to know that, hey, I'm just a normal guy, too, <laughs> But I love this part because John gets back to his main point, and John will describe how he followed Jesus. It's different than Peter. Peter was going to, he was called to be like this primary leader shepherd of a guy, and his outcome ultimately was going to be crucifixion. But John's a different story. He says, what about him? Well, John lets us know about himself. He answers the question for us. Look at verse 24. It says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John here is now referencing his own contribution to the mission of Jesus in his absence. He's saying like, okay, that was going to be what Peter's doing, but you've seen what I'm doing. I'm the one that's writing to you this testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, here's my contribution. If John was like the pastor guy, I'm more of the, the writer guy. <laughs> uh, but he has a role to play as well. And if, if Peter was going to be like shepherding flocks, like John was going to be doing like evangelism, it's just so fascinating to see their differences. And John even uses that like editorial. We, we know these things are true. Like I'm the one who has come and given you official, authenticated, verifiable eyewitness testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. That's, that's the role that I've played. And you know what they would know? That his outcome was totally different too. It's a tale of two Christ followers. 
Two men, forgiven of sin, forged into mighty workers for the glory of God in Christ, but two different lives, two different outcomes, but same ultimate direction. Peter, we learn, follows Christ not only in the kind of death predicted here, but he would do so in an even more potentially revolting way as church history records that he did not want to be crucified upright as Jesus was, but asked to be crucified upside down. About 30 years would pass between this prediction and Peter's crucifixion, and yet everything that Jesus said would come true. Peter would indeed pastor. He would be the first pastor at the church of Jerusalem. And then when persecution would ultimately take place, some people think that Peter is recorded as being a pastor at Antioch as well, and then others believe that he ultimately ended up in Rome as evidenced by his reference to writing from Babylon in his epistles. And he would die in service to his Lord, just as Jesus predicted. But John, John was quite different the outcome of his life, not recorded in the pages of Scripture, but in the pages of history, would be that he would actually go on to spend some time in Ephesus in particular. We don't know that he was a pastor. He provided some obvious pastoral or apostolic leadership. But John would write. John would write this gospel at a ripe old age. Peter dies around A.D. 60. John is writing here in A.D. 91 to, to 93. He gets to be an old man. He gets to live out his days, and yet he's not immune from suffering, even though some accounts actually say that he is. Rumor has it, and it's hard to read first century sources and know how viable they are, but rumor has it that John was actually boiled in oil for his ministry to Jesus, but supposedly, and listen to this, this is how the rumor goes, he escaped unscathed. They say it was a miracle. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I can't help but think that that rumor about Peter, I mean, uh, John not dying, like, also, like, worked in people's minds that they thought he was some kind of superhero and immune from pain. But here's what we do know more clearly is that after that incident in which he was caught by the Roman Empire for testifying to the risen Lord Jesus, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, which he would write the book of Revelation and end out his days. He's the only of the, the apostles that we know of that did not die a martyr's death. What a disparate outcome. One is the pastor, the other is the writer. One lives a shorter life, the other lives a longer life. One dies in intense pain, the other dies riding on an island. <laughs> but they both follow Jesus. Though we fail, we still get to follow The risen Christ will work through failures just like us. What a simple lesson. 
As he worked through ordinary men, so he will continue working through ordinary men and women and boys and girls just like us. Here are three lessons for those of us wanting to follow Jesus despite our failures. Lesson number one, follow Jesus from love. Follow Jesus from love. Both Peter and John are are marked here by their love for Jesus Christ as their Lord. You notice that in both conversations? Like, for Peter, it isn't about, like, just get to the work. He's asking them, do you love me? Like, are you, are you willing to, like, lay down yourself and put me at highest, at best? Like, do you love me? John is described as the one whom Jesus loved, the one who wanted to be close to him. Why did these men do what they do? What compelled them to go and serve in these ways and to continue, like, the legacy of Christ for generations to be engaged in the work? It wasn't guilt. It was grace. They just loved Jesus. Friends, I want you to understand that in your service to Christ, whatever that looks like, whether it be in your home or at your workplace or in this church, it is not something that you are doing to somehow earn his love. It is an expression of the enjoyment of his love. It is a gratitude. It is not a requirement. This, this serving is, is from love. That's what he's trying to say. Like, like, this is where it comes from. He has shown his love to you. We reciprocate that love to him. And since we know that love by faith, we show that love through obedience and service. It's from love. I, I would simply ask, though you failed, do you love him? Do you love him? Just keep following. Just keep following. Don't pull out. Lesson two. Lesson one, follow Jesus from love. Lesson two, follow Jesus through church. Follow Jesus through church. This one could seem controversial in our day and age, where we tend to emphasize our personal-only relationship with Jesus. And yet, notice how the expressions of faithful following of Jesus here are inescapably interpersonal. What does he say to Peter? Hey, you love me? Feed my sheep. Take care of the flock. Be interested in the well-being of my people as a whole. How does John express his loyalty to Jesus? Not by sitting on the Isle of Patmos, singing Kumbaya, doing private meditation before God. but by writing to the churches, to the people of God. It's in 1 John, interestingly. John, John gets this. Read 1 John to see like the litmus test of love for Jesus, which is none other than this, loving his people, caring for his people. The vertical is evidenced by the horizontal The easiest one is 1 John 4.20 where he says this, How could you say that you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brothers whom you have seen? How can you say you you love like the dad 
but you don't love his children. But you have, you've never seen the dad. You've only seen his kids. So if it's really love, it's expressed through church, like through his people, through the body of Christ, through the family of God. It's inescapably interpersonal. John says it this way as well. You're used to 1 John 4.20. Listen to this. Hear, heed the words of the Spirit through the Apostle John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, or excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us or made known among us that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you're thinking like, oh, this is awesome. God loves us so much. And he says this, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you see the connection? John could not drop this conversation from his mind. He saw Jesus' connection between love for him and love and care for his people. And I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, you're like, how am I going to show this love? Oh, it is indeed from love, but it is through church. Some of us could be thinking, hmm, this sounds a little too internal. It sounds a little too us for no more, like the Christian country club. I mean, really, like, is it really determined or displayed by our love for one another? Like, shouldn't we be out there, like, like, like preaching the gospel and passing out tracts and starting churches and places unknown? I, look, I love all that. But I can't get around the fact that Jesus said, The inescapable sign of your devotion to me is your love for one another. Here's how this all connects. Jesus said it in John 13. He said, look, I'm going to go away. And this will be the evidence that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. That's John 13. But then in 14 and 15, he begins to describe his mission to the world It is from the overflow of God's people to one another that it will then go out into the world around them. The love is from the Father, through God the Son, to believers in Him as Lord and God. It is then enabled by the Spirit to go out to one another and then out into the world. I want you to understand, friends, that even though like, we can treasure gospel doctrine, it will be first and foremost displayed in relationships to one another. I think every one of us know what it's like to like, have a, like, we do a really great job at like, networking with like, our, our peeps like, out in the world, but struggling with our family within. And yet, God is saying, no, 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 it's going to start the other way around. It's going to start on the inside. I want to help you with this because you could be looking around here and you're like, man, some of these people are hard to love. You have no idea. You have no idea what they've done to me. You have no idea what they've said. Can I remind you of something? You have no idea what journey they've taken to sit beside you today. You don't know. 
What some people have had to give up, what some people have suffered, what some people have endured just to show up and be present and evidence Jesus together with you. There is a high cost of following the Lord. Some have forsaken family, some have forsaken careers, some have forsaken great sources of pleasure or productivity to them, all because they just want to sit and worship Jesus with you. And it's so easy to think, oh, I don't know about them. You need to remember that we're all coming from some pretty broken places, and that is to be the litmus test of love. Like, love that person. The Spirit of God is in them. Amen to, I agree. In, um, in Tolkien's The Hobbit, there's this uh, funny passage where this uh, succession of, of, of dwarves just keep interrupting Bilbo Baggins' like, domestic space. They're like all up in his grill. And um, Bilbo likes his tranquility. He likes to smoke his pipe. He likes to, to write his stories, you know, and they're just constantly like just invading on his space. <laughs> and, um, yeah, they just assume that they can avail themselves of his hospitality at any time. And as the story unfolds, it is discovered that um, the wizard Gandalf, without seeking Bilbo's prior approval, had scratched a magic invitation to, for the dwarves on the hobbit's front door. <laughs> Friends, I want you to understand this ain't about you. An invitation has been inscribed on this congregation for more to come in, for more to be loved, for more to be nurtured, for more to be cared for. You've been called into following Jesus, fervent love for his people. And when that happens, it will flow out into the world. I, I'll do this with just one more reference, and then I'll move on. But just hear these words. I read them the other day. I find them helpful. The beauty of community in a church is meant to be a plausibility structure for the gospel, lifting its social visibility as a pillar, reinforcing its persuasive power as a buttress. A church makes the gospel known and even compelling and it will not be a captivating voice for the truth if it is not first a beautiful family. If we didn't already know how it ended, if you have, excuse me, Jesus says, by this will all men know you are my disciples. And if you didn't know how it ended, how would you fill in the blank? By this will all men know you're my disciples. If you dress modestly and listen to Christian music. If you go evangelize on the streets, if you build beautiful church buildings for everybody to drive by and see, like how, like how would you fill in the blank if you didn't know it? I don't think you'd fill it in the way Jesus would. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And the author concludes, we sometimes believe that the world will know we're Jesus' disciples if we're more impressive than our surrounding culture, if we have mic drop answers to every skeptic's question, if our people seem more put together than everyone else, or if our preacher is always telegenic and our music team always gives a virtuoso performance. But Jesus puts the emphasis elsewhere. 
Check out at your own discretion today, Acts 2, 42 to 47. Those people were baptized, and they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and prayers. And you know what it says? That the word of God spread mightily. All I would say practically is that there's an order to things here. There's an order to things. Like, for those of you who are evangelistically inclined, don't get it out of order. And for those of you who are internally inclined, don't forget about the evangelism. <laughs> There's an order. It's like making cinnamon toast. Have you ever made cinnamon toast? I did it last night for the first time in my life. I'm not kidding. Talk about failures. My parents always made it. And you're thinking, oh, Justin's pretty simple. It's cinnamon toast. I had no idea what I was doing. I got out the wrong pans to start off with. I didn't know what temperature to turn the oven on. I eventually got the right pan. And then I laid all the bread out. And I was thinking, I'm just going to put little squares of butter on there. And Tanya's like, no, you can't do that yet. You have to warm the butter first. And then you have to spread it out across there. And then I didn't know how much sugar to put on. I was like, do you put it on before or after? Like something as simple as cinnamon toast. There is a basic order in which things must flow, as I learned last night. It didn't turn out well, by the way. Another fail. Now, friends, there's, a, there's an order to things. An order to things. I just want to simplify this for you. I should probably be repeating this more as a pastor. I just want you to know, here's the order. Um, delighting in Christ, like serving him, deriving, deriving life from him, like getting it from him. By faith, initially and ongoingly, like looking to his word and prayer, like filling your heart, like being with the people of God. It starts there. And then the, the next place it goes is it starts to flow out. Here's, here's step two. It flows out in good works. Good works in your personal life and in your purity and in your personal love for others and in your family and in your workplace. Like you're, you're just wanting to evidence good everywhere you go. So there's in and then there's out. But guess where it especially flows out? Now, it goes out everywhere. There should be good works everywhere. But Galatians tells us this, let's do good to all men, but especially those who are of the household of God. Like, we want to be good employees, and we want to be good parents, but we definitely want to be really good to the family of God, like there's the, the serving His bride. So, delighting in Christ, evidencing good works, serving His bride, and through that, we advance the gospel. Like, now we have a platform, a platform of good works, and it goes out compellingly to the world. And some will pray for the gospel to go forward, and some will partner in that and like want to financially get behind people and emotionally get behind people, and some will pursue it by going. But the church is doing that through a healthy family dynamic. And so following Jesus, despite failure, happens from love through church. And here's the last one, despite differences. It flows despite differences. You follow him despite differences. That is why John added that last little thing. He could have totally done like the mic drop thing with Jesus' final follow me after that thing. Like, you're going to die, follow me, bam, shut the book. Like, this thing's over. And yet he adds those awkward lines that most of us look at and we're like, I don't have a clue why that's there. It's there for a reason. And it's there because we all have the tendency to be like Peter. It's like, 
all right, Lord, I know you've called me to follow you, but my life's really hard. Why is this guy so easy? Lord, why'd you give me this kind of family? And why do I suffer from these kind of illnesses? And why did my kids not turn out this kind of way? And why do I only make this amount of money? And why, why, why? Like, I don't know if I can follow you because like everybody else has got it pretty easy. And what he's saying here is, don't worry about the other people. He repeats in the text, follow me. It isn't just the past that can mess you up. It can be the people around you. I used to sing this song as a kid in church. It's not popular. Like some of the old hymns that I quote with you guys, like you're like, yeah, I know that one. Maybe some of you know. But here's the words. It's fascinating, so helpful for this. And with this, we conclude. In shady green pastures, so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. Where the water's cool flow bathes the weary one's feet, God leads his dear children along. Sometimes on the mount where the sun shines so bright, God leads his dear children along. Sometimes in the valley in the darkest of night, God leads his dear children along. Though sorrows befall us and evils oppose, God leads his dear children along. Through grace we can conquer, defeat all our foes. God leads his dear children along. And here's the chorus. Some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. Follow Christ from love, through church, despite differences. I pray that some of you would follow Christ today by faith for the first time, regardless of your failures regardless of your past. Enter in, follow him. And if that seems so strange and so weird to you, we're even going to sing a song for you at the end to contemplate. Come all ye unfaithful. Listen to those words. Consider trusting in him alone for salvation today. Two, some of you have already trusted Christ and are thereby following him. Can I just encourage you? Keep following. I don't know what's happened this year. I don't know if you failed quantitatively or qualitatively or creatively or categorically he bids you follow though you failed it is finished Jesus paid it all continue to from love pour out your life through church to the world despite the differences of those around you and so with that our closing song will be arise shine church put your armor on
So let's meditate together on these glorious gospel truths. Please bow your heads with me. I'll pray. And then the band will sing the first song. If you know it, you can sing along with them, and we'll conclude with Arise, Shine, and that will finish our service. Father, thank you for your grace shown in Jesus. I just constantly wonder at times, like, what would, what would we be like if certain passages of Scripture weren't there? And if this one wasn't here, I think we'd be a little harder, a little more judgmental, a little more persnickety, a little less grace-filled. But it is here. So, so fuel our love for, for Jesus through the forgiveness that he freely offers. Engage us once more in, in mission and intentionality in our walk with him. And bring others in who are not yet there. Or may the unfaithful come and find grace and forgiveness in the faithful one. And may we who are in Christ arise and display him through the world in the weeks and years to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.